It is 17.01 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. Hello, welcome to the program. My name is Spumelele Zondi. You can find us on 7260 kHz on the 31-meter band if you are in Southern Africa. You can also stream us. We are on channelafrica.co.za. I'm with Joala Netulo, Tracy Bumgard and Neto Chimane. Your top stories. The Democratic Republic of the Congo is finally holding elections on December 23. The PAC elects a new president. Uganda has one of the largest numbers of cases of sexual violence. In economic news, ratings agency Fitch has warned that a no deal for Brexit could cut Britain's credit rating again. And in sport, Rugby Australia responds to their worst test campaign in 60 years by appointing a new director. Thank you, Spomalele. Good afternoon. At least one person has been killed and over 80 injured in weekend clashes between supporters of rival candidates just days ahead of the DRC's crucial presidential election. The country is on edge ahead of the December 23 vote to replace President Joseph Kabila, who has ruled the resource-rich nation since 2001. Unrest erupted in Chikapa, a city in the rest of central Kasai region on Sunday, when the planes of two rival candidates, opposition heavyweight Felix Chisekedi and former Education Minister Meka Mwango, landed at the airport just a few hours apart. Sources with observers at the scene said at least one person had been killed and around 20 arrested. Madagascar hits the polls on Wednesday in a crunch head-to-head election between Mark Ravalomanana and Andre Rajolina. Analysts could analysts say this could revive instability in the country if a close result is rejected by the losing candidates. The two contenders will compete in the runoff election after coming first and second far ahead of their competitors in the preliminary vote in November. Ravalomanana and Rajolina were both banned from running in the 2013 election as part of an agreement to end recurring crises that have rocked Madagascar since independence from France in 1960. Ethiopia has confirmed that its troops have begun withdrawing from positions along the border with Eritrea. Ethiopia says the troop withdrawal from the long-disputed border area is part of the de- peace deal it signed a few months ago. The BBC's Emmanuel Igunza has the story. Five months after leaders of Eritrea and Ethiopia signed a landmark peace deal, Ethiopia's defense ministry has confirmed that it has begun moving its troops from contested areas along the border. The withdrawal of troops has always been a key demand of the Eritrean government prior to signing of the peace agreement in July. The two countries fought a bitter war between 1998 and 2000. Despite a peace deal agreed two years later, relationship between them remains strained. But since July, Ethiopia's new Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed, has spearheaded reforms within and outside the country that have seen trade and diplomatic ties between Eritrea and Ethiopia restored. The number of deaths on South African roads in three coastal provinces over the long weekend has risen to a clear 75 with the news that the Eastern Cape province has experienced a total of 22 fatalities reported from various incidents across that province since Friday. The Western Cape province has reported 34 fatalities over the holiday weekend and KwaZulu-Natal 19. Human error such as speeding, fatigue, driving and walking under the influence of alcohol have been cited as the major contributing factor 
factors in these incidents. And finally, tight border security measures between South Africa, Mozambique and Eswatini have yielded positive results uh, since the beginning of the festive season. Since the beginning of the long weekend, um, Pumalanga police have intercepted at least five stolen vehicles at the Limbombo border post that was smuggled into Zimbabwe and the arrest of the suspects. South Africa's police minister, Begitrele, visited the Limbombo border post on Monday to check how police were, ex- were executing their duties during the festive season. Season. Earlier, Kele also interacted with communities and police structures in the Nkomazi area. Some communities raised concerns at housebreaking and rape on the increase in that area. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Jolani Tulo. Thank you very much, Jolane. It is 17.06 Central African time. You are still listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we continue to give you news from an African perspective. Tweet us. We are on Channel Africa 1 or you can find us on info at channelafrica.co.za. Let's start in the Democratic Republic of Congo. We're a country that's finally holding elections on December 23, two years late. President Joseph Kabila is not on the ballot, but there are concerns over whether it will be free and fair. The BBC has spent nearly six weeks traveling the Congo River, starting from the Atlantic Ocean, passing through rapids and crossings and crossing the equator twice to see another side of a country the size of Western Europe. The first part of the series starts by looking back on history. The BBC's Alistair Littead starts this report in the Pygmy village of Boyanga. A thousand kilometers from the sea and four hours drive from the nearest town, the Pygmies of Boyanga village live a very traditional life. They're preparing for the hunt as always with a good luck ritual chanting, lighting a smouldering log to carry, tightening their homemade bows and fitting flights to their arrows. They're all barefoot, shirtless and wearing tatty shorts made from cut-down jeans and tracksuit bottoms. And we're going hunting with them. These guys here have found a hole, animal hole, um, and then the other ones found the other end of it. And so they're using their, their knives, uh, their pangas, the, the, the machetes, and smoke to try and force the, the animal that's in that hole out. A century ago, the brutal Belgian king, Leopold II, who owned the country as his personal colony, discovered there was something in the forest worth a huge amount of money, rubber. One of the elders is cutting the thick wooden branch with his machete, and a white sap is seeping out. These wild rubber vines were needed for bicycle tyres, but Ilungamba Ayanda describes how the pygmies were made to collect it. What our ancestors went through was unbearable. They were submitted to hard, forced labor and not paid for the work they did. They really suffered. Many of them died after being beaten. Some were punished by having their hands cut off. It was brutal. Up to 10 million people died under Leopold's rule. The first international human rights campaign forced him to hand over his personal colony to the Belgian state in 1908. But the exploitation and brutality continued. Even after independence in 1960, things didn't get much better. 
We've come to the far north of the DRC, to the edge of the country now, to an eerie ruin that was once the jungle palace of Mobutu Sese Seko. He ruled the country for 32 years and renamed it Zaire. He had expensive tastes. For me, when I come here to see again how the people destroy this palace, in shock to me. Chief Osambia Kapwata Fifi is one of Mabutu's daughters. It was very beautiful, I told you. Very, very beautiful. At the entrance, there were one Picasso's painting. Well, into this room, and what I'm told was the huge banqueting hall. Kind of a set of steps going down here, but we're surrounded by a two, three meter high grass where there used to be a, a huge marble table with a massive chandelier hanging above what's now just these rusted bare girders. Everything that could have been stolen pretty much has been. Mobutu was the power behind the scenes after independence and when he became president in a 1965 coup transformed himself into a classic African dictator. Political opponents and rivals were killed or tortured. He was corrupt and got rich while the country got poor. He's uh, been alleged to have been a brutal president. Oh, brutal. I don't think so. <laughs> if you're brutal, you have to start it with your family. Never. You never do like that. This overgrown palace is now a monument to the past. In 1997, an invasion and a coup forced Mobutu out and he died in exile. When the dictator fell, the country went to war with itself. The current problems in the DRC relate to both colonial exploitation and the mismanagement of this country after independence. That is Alistair Litted reporting from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Now, leaders of the nations of the Lake Chad region have agreed to step up efforts to bring the activities of terror groups in the region to an end with the introduction of additional strategies for their optimum result. Rising from a one-day extraordinary meeting in Abuja, the leaders, which comprised Nigeria, Chad, Cameroon and Niger, said while it will ensure the adequate use of collaboration between the locals and the troops on the field, it will also give attention to rehabilitation, reconstruction and greater exchange of intelligence to complement military efforts. Collins Atahangbe reports that ambassadors, field commanders and military chiefs from nations contributing troops to the war against terror were also in attendance. There is no doubt that leaders and the people of member nations of the Lake Chad region are wary of the incessant violent attack from insurgent groups operating within the enclave. The ceaseless tears of families of those who have paid the ultimate price in defense of their countries against terrorism and the innocents whose lives were snuffed out by the heartless attackers whose primary motive for persecuting and provoked war against the hitherto peaceful communities has remained a mirage. Nigeria in particular has borne the brunt of these attackers with a high out of soldiers dead with a Metele incident in which not less than 100 military personnel lost their lives a few weeks ago. The horrendous incident brought leaders of the region to a round table on the 29th of November to discuss additional strategies needed to tackle the Boko Haram campaign of violence. The chairman of the sub-regional body, President 
Muhammad Buhari disclosed then what member nations would have to do further. Our military strategy must be complemented by the mobilization and deployment of adequate resources to ensure the reconstruction, rehabilitation and rebuilding of civil authority as well as the provision of relief and succor for the affected. During the chat meeting, the leaders agreed and established a defense and security committee to examine the issues at stake and came out with a report which was set for consideration at the one-day extraordinary meeting in Abuja, Nigeria. Declaring the session open, President Buhari said it was now time to bring the evil Boko Haram to a conclusive end. The time has come for the evil of Boko Haram to be brought to a definitive end. I am sure that this summit will take the right decisions in this regard. This is a fight to the finish. We must and we will, by the grace of God, wipe out terrorism from our sub-region. In having that done, there must be practical means of securing the enclaves to avoid unnecessary bloodbaths and wanton destruction of property and the economic life of the people of the region as have been witnessed in almost a decade of efforts to tame the intractable terror attackers, which has brought sorrow to many lives and families. The executive secretary of the Lake Chad Basin Commission, Mama Nuhu, took a look at the salient points of agreement reached by the leaders. The heads of state and government renewed their commitment to the fight against Boko Haram terrorists with a view to bringing a definitive end to the insurgency. They affirmed their commitment to the accelerated implementation of the regional stabilization strategy in the areas of Lake Chad affected by the Boko Haram crisis which was recently endorsed by the African Union Peace and Security Council. The incident which took a heavy toll on Nigeria and a number of sporadic attacks on the neighboring countries made the leaders sorrowful as expressed by President Buhari who also took the time to express appreciation for the assistance received from countries and bodies outside the Lake Chad region. I must now pay tribute to our gallant troops who remain focused and committed to the task of ensuring the safety and stability of the region. I urge you to remain steadfast in executing the war with the highest sense of honor, professionalism, and patriotism. To our esteemed partners and the larger international community, we thank you for intelligence sharing and operations in our determination to defeat Boko Haram and its affiliates. And after about four hours of closed-door meeting in a plenary session, the leaders came out with a communique which spelled out what it would do to achieve its goals of uprooting the last vestiges of Boko Haram and all forms of terror from the Lake Chad region, where the lives of the community have been brought to a nightmarish standstill by unprovoked violence. Recognize the important role of local community leaders in the fight against Boko Haram. Agreed to seek the support of the community leaders to strengthen the fight against terrorism. Expressed appreciation to the African Union Peace and Security Council 
for renewing the yearly mandate of the multinational joint task force for the year 2019. The heads of state and government once again appeal to the international community to continue to support their efforts in the fight against terrorism in the region. From the very onset of the battle to put the insurgents out of business, the international communities and organizations which included the African Union, the Economic Community of West African States, the European Union and the United Nations Organization and its organs have all worked gloves in hand with the government of with Lake Chad regional countries and made enormous material and financial contributions in addition to intelligence support to end the crisis. What must not be taken lightly is development initiative without which the impoverished masses of youths in the area will continue to get attracted to the lying promises of a heaven for them by the terror groups and its helpers. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nosato Hingwe for Channel Africa News. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people. And we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Channel Africa. It is 17:18 Central African Time on Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we continue to give you news from an African perspective to Uganda now a country that has one of the largest numbers of cases of sexual violence in East Africa. According to official police data, 90% of the victims are children under the age of 18. A lack of resources means that most cases are never tried. But for the last month, the government with the help from the United Nations has been running special court sessions to clear a huge backlog in cases which run in the thousands. Critics have concerns about whether they ensure proper due process for the accused. The BBC's Catherine Biaruhanga reports from Kampala. I therefore sentence him to imprisonment for 16 years from the date of first remand in prison. Another case is concluded, but four years after the crime was committed. The man pleaded guilty to raping a nine-year-old girl. When Rachel, not her real name, first told her family she'd been raped, no one listened. She confided in her teacher, who helped, and now looks after her after she was abandoned by relatives. Now 13, Rachel continues to struggle with the trauma of the attack. Ever since she started getting some abdominal pains, whenever she gets that pain, she remembers the, the, that period when she was being raped. So I think with the time, she'll just keep on counseling her and then she get, it gets out of her head and from her memory. In the past month, over 600 cases like Rachel's were scheduled to be heard in 13 special court sessions across the country. The United Nations Population Fund is backing the process with over 260,000 US dollars in support. This also pays for the training of detectives, prisons and judicial officers on how to deal with such sensitive cases. Getting cases to court can often take years. The aim of this project is to process them more quickly.
Judge Susan Okalani, who presided over Rachel's case, says such delays make it even harder to get justice. I'm handling cases four years old. If the child was six years at that t- the time of the offence, she's now ten. She may not recollect all the facts. And if she forgets those crucial facts in a system that relies heavily on eyewitness accounts, that is an acquittal, more or less. A UN survey this year found that over one-third of young women in Uganda say they were sexually abused as children. And as they get older, half of all women are likely to experience violence at the hands of their partners. I've come to meet Simon Peter Chinobe at his busy, noisy offices in downtown Kampala. He's the president of the Uganda Law Society. They're a partner of the special court sessions and their job is making sure the accused get a fair hearing. We've been in some courts where people have just pleaded guilty. Do you think that could be a symptom of maybe the accused feeling that that's just the easiest way to deal with their case rather than spending years and years on on remand? Well, I can't rule that out because uh, in all honesty, uh, some of them have been on remand for two to three years and more and have not, I mean, had a fair trial. And um, at times the easier option is to plead guilty and, you know, serve your sentence at go. But uh, we are hoping and uh, discouraging uh, accused people from pleading guilty to just get out of prison. Back at Rachel's school, her teachers report that she has responded proactively to the judgment and has been using her experience to encourage her schoolmates to speak out if they face abuse. Every time we get counselling sessions, she's too much involved and she calls her friends. She tells them, please, should not miss this. And she always advises her friends that, please, if you get any problem, don't keep quiet. The government hopes to eventually set up a special court to deal with sexual and gender-based violence, as sessions like these can only go so far in addressing the backlog and ensuring a fair trial. The report was done by Catherine Biaruhanga, who is reporting from Gambala in Uganda. At least 21 people have been killed and many more displaced after two days of fighting between ethnic groups in southern Ethiopia. The violence broke out near the town of Moyale on the border with Kenya in a region claimed by both the Oromo, the largest ethnic group in the country, and the Somali ethnic group. Outbreaks of violence in the south between the Oromo and other groups have escalated since Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, the first leader from the Oromo ethnic group in Ethiopia's modern history, came to office in March. Last year, fighting between members of the two ethnic groups left more than a million people displaced. For more on the original inter-ethnic conflicts dynamics, Channel Africa's Kumbera Munjarere spoke to Christoph van der Bierken, Associate Professor at Addis Ababa University. He says the latest violence is not surprising. 
Well, I'm not really surprised by this because this kind of event has been happening across the country. So this is not something that is limited to that specific area, to the Boyali town, but uh, this kind of violence has been occurring throughout the country, unfortunately. So we see that many people belonging to ethnic communities are being targeted because of their ethnic identities. So unfortunately, this is not a problem that is limited to that specific area. Of course, in that specific area, we have seen uh, this kind of violence before. Now, what is uh, Prime Minister Abiy? Ahmed's government doing to address this problem, uh, Prof? Yeah, it's it's quite complicated, you know. I mean, it's something that goes back to the past, basically. As you may know, Ethiopia has adopted a federal system of government, and this federal system of government was designed to, to accommodate ethnic diversity. But at the same time, the system has also strengthened ethnic identity. So many of the traditional problems, uh, many of the traditional claims and demands have taken, let's say, an ethnic dimension. And uh, it is something that that's, that's not easy to address. So what is now the main challenge and the main uh, program for the government is basically to, to establish rule of law. That is uh, very important across the country, basically. We have seen important political changes in the past couple of months, but what is now very important is to restore rule of law, to restore basic order across the country. Now, do you think uh, Prime Minister Abiy's reformist agenda of uniting all ethnic groupings in Ethiopia is working, especially when it comes to the land disputes? I think this is very important. It's very important that the Prime Minister is focusing on bringing together, because in a context of highly politicized ethnicity, in a context of high ethnic antagonism, it is very important to focus on unity. Bringing unity in the country is highly important. It will take time. First of all, I think the basic instrument or the the basic uh, mechanism to bring that unity is, as I just said, is establishing rule of law, bringing back rule of law, establishing um, functioning institutions like functioning courts, functioning police forces. I think that is very important. So the Prime Minister indeed has called for inter-ethnic unity, peace and harmony, but it needs to be backed up by institutional mechanisms to bring that about. So there is still a lot of work in that regard. An internal United Nations report prof has confirmed uh, the fighting and said uh, there is likelihood that the conflict could spill over into Kenya. Uh, Do you share this sentiment, Prof? Well, I think uh, indeed we see that, and that also has to do with the fact that many uh, regional forces are heavily armed. We see that, um, and and that may may cause a problem. So I think there is always this danger because you have the same communities living in Kenya. You have Oromo communities, you have Somali communities living in Kenya as well. So ultimately the conflict is about territory, it's about access to land, it's about access to natural resources. But in the context of elevated ethnicity, this conflict has taken an ethnic dimension, basically. So having these two ethnic communities living in Kenya, uh, the fact also that these communities are heavily armed, that they seem to have easy access to to heavy arms, there's always this kind of risk. So I think it is very important to settle these mechanisms, and it's quite urgent. In that specific area, in the Moyali area, it's quite urgent. So I think policies that focus on inclusion, policies that focus on institutionalization, policies that focus on having a basic rule of law are the best way to address uh, this issue. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. 
Channel Africa Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Yeah. It is info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za, or Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. Remember that you can also write to us on email and you can send your WhatsApp messages as well. Jonathan Natulo is in studio with your news headlines. It's not your economic news, it's your news headlines. Thank you, Spumalele. Making headlines, at least one person has been killed and over 80 injured in weekend clashes between supporters of rival candidates just days ahead of the DR Congo's crucial presidential election. Madagascar heads to the polls on Wednesday in a crunch head-to-head election between Mark Ravalomanana and Andre Rajolina. And finally, Ethiopia has confirmed that its troops have begun withdrawing from positions along the border with Eritrea. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. You can WhatsApp us. We are on plus two seven seven six three hundred three three. Now, the Pan-Africanist Congress Party in South Africa has elected new leaders at its three-day conference in Kimberley in the Northern Cape Province. Mzwanele Nyonso is the party's new president. He garnered 176 votes. His contenders were Lutando Mbinda and Zamekaya Tabe. He beats them by 121 and 28 votes respectively. The conference was attended by delegates from all nine provinces. Nobilungu Noapane attended the conference and compiled the following report. The newly elected president of the PAC, Mzwane Lenyonzo, was formerly the party's deputy president who served during Litlapa Mpahlele's leadership in 2015. Mpahlele was later expelled from the party as the conference that elected him was declared invalid. Narias Muloto was then elected leader in December 2017. Now the new president, Mzwane Lenyonzo, says there are no longer factions in the party. 
unity of this party is key and uh, I believe that we can do that and uh, in fact we are making a call to all those who are still not part of this unity uh, gathering because remember there was this unity conference here in Kimberley in August which resulted into this elected congress this weekend. Other members of the party's newly elected executive include Mbuise Loganzo as deputy president, Apapuwe as the secretary general, and Sibusiso Kaba as the party's national chairperson. Nyonzo says his aim is to welcome those members, including Mulodo, who did not attend the conference. We will simply make a clarion call even to him. We will invite him to come and join us. We don't expect any problems from anyone. We expect every PAC member and everyone who calls himself a PAC member to come and join APs. So we expect him to come. In fact, we are making this call that Narias must come and join us. Meanwhile, Narias Muloto, who has snapped the conference, has slammed it as illegal. He says he remains the leader of the party and has already opened a fraud case against the organizers. It's not the individual that goes to the Congress. It's the delegates which are coming from the branches. How can they then say they invite me as an individual? Nothing in so far as the case is concerned is null and void. We have already opened a fraud case for the usage of the forged letters of the PAC, the name and the logos of the PAC. They do not have an authority nor right to do so. With the newly elected PAC president extending an olive branch to Narias Mulodo, it remains to be seen whether this will put the factional battles to rest or whether there will be more courtroom dramas recurring factionalism and leadership battles that have dodged the party for years. in Kimberley. The African Development Bank on Monday donated $1 million towards eradicating cholera in Zimbabwe. Through its multi-donor trust fund, the bank manages all donations meant for support recovery in Zimbabwe. Meanwhile, the grant on Monday comes three months after the country was badly hit by a cholera outbreak in Harare and 17 other districts, which saw more than 50 people killed. Our Harare correspondent, Simon Machema, filed this one. In September this year, Zimbabwe's capital Harare was struck with a cholera outbreak that quickly spread to 17 other districts. At least 50 people died owing to drug shortages such that Zimbabwe declared the outbreak a national disaster. In Zimbabwe, cholera is mostly associated with poor sanitation, shortage of potable water, and contaminated boreholes. As such, the country expects the cholera cases to start increasing again owing to increased rains during this season and increased human traffic over Christmas. To avert further cholera outbreaks and control its spread, the African Development Bank, AFDB, on Monday donated $1 million U.S. million towards the cause. Domati Kitabire, country manager, African Development Bank, said, And today's ceremony is evidence of our ability to respond to our regional member countries' needs when required. In our view, this is a crisis worth fighting with all our available means, and we demonstrate that today with this grant of $1 million to be immediately disbursed through the World Health Organization. 
to abate and control further spread of the disease. Distinguished ladies and gentlemen, this support to Zimbabwe will complement government's efforts and assistance by development partners, as well as the World Health Organization to avert a national and regional social and economic uh, catastrophe by making it possible to prevent further deaths from cholera, as well as containing its spread beyond the current affected areas. Cholera has become an emergency in Zimbabwe such that the Southern African Development Community, SADAC, is on high alert. The situation has been worsened by the fact that junior doctors have embarked on a strike that is so far threatened to cripple the country's health delivery system. World Health Organization country representative had this to say. As we all may remember, at the time the outbreak was confirmed, we were receiving over 2,000 new cases of cholera per week. Implementation of this plan, which included intensifying case uh, detection, disease surveillance, case management, improving access to safe water, educating communities, and vaccination has resulted in this outbreak being largely contained. As we meet here today, over 1.3 million people living in the highest affected areas were vaccinated against cholera. As a result of all these interventions, the outbreak has come down dramatically. As we meet here today, we are registering far less cases. Each week, we are still registering around 80 to 90 cases of cholera. The Zimbabwean Finance Minister, Dr. Mtuling said cholera is a hygiene disease, hence citizens are urged to exercise cleanliness during these rains. Dr. Mtuli confirmed there was poor planning around cholera leading to the outbreaks in the capital. Between 2008 and 2009, hundreds of citizens died when one of the worst cholera outbreaks in the history of the country struck some parts of Harare and surrounding towns. Despite previous events, Zimbabwe is still experiencing those outbreaks now and then. Dr. Mtuli made the following remarks. To this end, I'm grateful uh, for the grand aid support from the AFDB, which amounts to one million uh, US dollars to complement ongoing efforts by government to control the disease through, through the proposed cholera response strategy. Distinguished guests, in summary, the support provides for the following. Uh, a capacity building for 100 local authorities in water quality monitoring, uh, uh, 300 village uh, health workers in participatory health hygiene uh, education and community education and communication as well. It will also cover the procurement of essential medical laboratory uh, protective and emergency response equipment supplies and finally cover the support to the Ministry of Health and Child Care uh, field uh, monitoring activities. The fund will be administered over a period of 12 months through the WHO, which is a, a designated executing agency. In Harare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa.
It is 17.40 Central African time. Now, environmental organization Greenpeace Africa says the agreement that has been reached at the United Nations Climate Conference in Poland does not go far enough in preventing the dangerous effects of global warming. After two weeks of talks in the Polish city of uh, Katowice, officials from uh, around the world finally reached a consensus on a more detailed framework for the 2015 Paris Agreement, which aims to limit a rise in average world temperatures to well below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Last year, United States President Donald Trump announced that his country would withdraw from the Paris Agreement, which threw the United Nations process into disarray. While summit, uh, while the summit rather didn't leave everyone happy, most have accepted the outcome as a solid basis to continue work on a global climate regime that is meant to govern national efforts for the next decade. Greenpeace Africa's Hepi Kambule says the agreement is a step in the right direction, but more still needs to be done. One of the biggest issues that we've come out with is that the framework in itself isn't going far enough in order to detail what is necessary in order for us to take urgent action around climate change. I mean, the biggest outcome essentially is that there's a framework and countries more or less agree to a common set of rules in order to implement the Paris Agreement, but that those rules in themselves don't move countries forward and they do not provide for dealing with some of the more political issues that have always been in the negotiations, such as how do you then account for different countries' capabilities to address climate change. Now, according to the report by the United Nations Development Agency, UNDP, which was launched on the sidelines of the summit, Africa is at a tipping point. What do the outcomes of a COP24 summit mean? for the African continent? Well, what they mean for the African continent is not necessarily addressing those issues that I identified in the UNDP report. But essentially what they mean is that African countries have more clarity now in what they need to do in order to access finance. Uh, They have more clarity about how the process of uh, gaining certain types of technology into the continent will happen and also about building the better capacity of addressing climate change. But also what it also means is that African countries are given more, I don't want to say authority, but they're given more responsibility in order to do what they said they would do in terms of addressing climate change. In the the last regime around international climate change governance, what we had is that developed countries like in Europe and in the North Americas, would be the ones that would be taking action and then facilitating that action in Africa. But this time is that African countries need to take the action and then get some form of support from developed country parties. The crunch conference, I suppose, will come in 2020 when countries must meet the deadline for the current emissions commitments and produce new targets for 2030 and beyond that go further towards meeting uh, scientific advice. Uh, Do you think talks are only going to be more fractious in the future or is there a light at the end of the tunnel here happy the good thing about this is that it's a catch-22 the more the talks become fractured the more we are likely uh, the issues that are really uh, at the base of this being addressed because if they're not fractured it means that they're not dealing with the really contentious issues so i would see the talks becoming more and more fractured not necessarily that people would believe in the talks, but it becomes more tense uh, more tense 
due to the fact that the issues that are being discussed are becoming more and more sensitive. When countries are saying, look, we're already dealing with climate change right now, we need support to be able to deal with it, or you need to account for it in your next uh, target, so your target needs to be stronger. Those kinds of languages are the things that could get other countries a little bit worried because then it changes how they should be doing their planning. But in terms of how the negotiations are going, it's a good thing that they continue going and so much as the targets get stronger and action is taken. Now, there is also a school of thought doing the rounds, Happy, that until we confront uh, capitalism, we will not solve the climate crisis. Is this also the view of Greenpeace? Well, that is the view of, of Greenpeace largely, and the reason why we are engaged in this process, you were saying that while it is being dealt with, we shouldn't be forgetting about the people who are already being impacted by exploitation, by um, slave, uh, slave, uh, slave conditions or bad working conditions, as well as being forgotten by the general economy. That's part of the idea that Greenpeace is engaging with, is that while we are dealing with this problem, do not forget the people who've been left behind. But also, this thing needs to end. But even if capitalism ends at this point in time uh, and we change to a new economic uh, pro- process, climate change is still happening. So we've already gotten the impact and we're already feeling the effects, even if the system that created the problem is no longer there. So we still need to deal with the actual problem that is uh, climate change. Happy Kambule is a climate and energy political advisor at Greenpeace Africa in conversation there with Kumbera Munjarere. It's 17.45 Central African time. Tracy Pumgaard is here with your economic news. Thank you. Zimbabwe's inflation has risen sharply to a new 10-year high of 31.01% year-on-year in November from 20.85% in October. This comes after prices of basic goods sparked, according to the country's statistical agency Zimstats. On a monthly basis, prices increased 9.2% during the same period compared to 16.44% in October. Inflation in Zimbabwe last rose above 30% in 2008 when former President Robert Mugabe won a strongly disputed election and a global economic slump hit markets. Glencore's Katanga Mining Division has agreed to pay more than $22 million to Canada's biggest stock market regulator. This follows allegations that Katanga hid risks of doing business in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The Ontario Securities Commission is expected to make allegations that outgoing DRC President Joseph Kabila lacked proper internal financial controls after it was revealed that Katanga was doing business with an Israeli businessman who had close ties with Kabila. An Italian judge says evidence shows that oil groups, ENI and Royal Dutch Shell, knew that the purchase of a Nigerian oil field would result in corrupt payments to Nigerian politicians and officials. The oil groups bought the OPL245 offshore field for just under $1.5 billion. The judge made the comment when handing down her reason for the September conviction to two middlemen in the deal. 
chairperson of the KwaZulu-Natal Trade and Industry and Inve- well, Trade and Investment Agency, Ina Kronier, has told s- stakeholders during the Investing in KwaZulu-Natal panel discussion in Cairo, Egypt, that the coastal province of South Africa could be used as a real gateway to Southern Africa due to its strategic geographic position. This, in turn, would boost trade among African countries. The discussion was held on the sidelines of the Intra-Africa Trade Fair. The Chief Operating Officer of Southern Africa for Afrexim Bank, Mr. Humphrey Nwugo, said even though the continent is faced with low levels of intra-trade, it is important to take into consideration that most African countries have infrastructure deficits that needs to be addressed in order to unlock trade and investment opportunities. He was speaking at the same event. Malaysia on Monday filed criminal charges against Goldman Sachs and two of the U.S. bank's former employees in connection with an investigation into suspected corruption and money laundering at State Fund One Malaysia Development, BHD, or One MDB. This is the first time Goldman Sachs has faced criminal charges in the One MDB scandal. The bank has consistently denied wrongdoing. Goldman Sachs has been under scrutiny for its role in helping raise $6.5 billion through three bond offerings for 1MDB, which is the subject of investigations in at least six countries. The U.S. Department of Justice says about $4.5 million was misappropriated from 1MDB, including some money that Goldman Sachs helped raise by high-level officials of the fund and their associates from 2009 through 2014. The U.S. dollar is trading at 10.51 Botswana Pula and at 11.99 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, the U.S. dollar is trading at 3.91 Brazilian Hale, at 66.64 Russian Ruble, at 71.71 Indian Rupee, at 6.90 Chinese Yuan and at 14.36 to the South African Rand. It's also trading at 79 pence to the British Pound and at 88 cents to the Euro. In commodities, gold is trading at $1,235 and platinum at $788 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $61.22 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. Thanks, Tracy. It is 17.50 Central African time. Neto Chemane has your sports news. Thank you, Spumalele, from the Sports Desk. A very good evening. Starting off with rugby news. Rugby Australia RA responded to their worst test campaign in 60 years by appointing Scott Johnson as director of rugby over retained head coach Michael Cheka, announced RA chief executive Raylene Castle this morning. We are very pleased to have secured Scott Johnson's services. He has built a strong reputation in the international rugby landscape over more than a decade. And since taking over as director of rugby in Scotland, the national team has climbed to the highest ever world ranking of fifth from a position of 12th. 
Cheka has been under intense pressure after the Wallabies won just four of 13 tests and slumped to sixth in the world rankings in a year when coaches would be looking to set out their stall ahead of next year's Rugby World Cup in Japan. We are confident that Michael is the right man to lead the Wallabies into the Rugby World Cup and the appointment of Scott Johnson will support Michael and his coaching team as they prepare for the tournament in Japan next September. A former Australia A, United States and caretaker Wales and Scotland coach, Johnson has been director of rugby at Scotland Rugby since 2013 and overseen an improvement in the fortunes of the Scottish game. In his recent review, Michael Checker identified potential changes to the current Wallaby structure and he and Scott will work their way through these recommendations. Scott and Michael will also be joined next year by a third independent selector to make up a new national selection panel that will oversee the Qantas Wallabies squad and team selection. On to football news. Banyana Banyana coach Desiree Ellis has announced a squad of 26 players to feature into international friendly matches early in the new year against the Netherlands and Sweden in Cape Town. Both matches will kickstart preparations for the 2019 Women's World Cup tournament, which takes place from the 7th of June to the 7th of July in France. Ellis has kept the bulk of the squad that participated in the 2018 Women's Afcon in Ghana earlier this month and saw Banyana qualify for their first ever World Cup. Two players have been omitted with seven brought in. Banyana will first take on the Netherlands in the winning Matikizela Mandela inauguration challenge on January the 19th at the Cape Town Stadium. A closed door training match against Sweden will precede this clash and will be played on January the 17th. Three days later on a Tuesday they will face the same they will face Sweden at the same venue. Baroka FC's Telkom Knockout Cup parade did not go as planned today following the unavailability of an open bus. The parade was scheduled to start from the club's offices in Leboakomo, move to Mpatele Royal House in Sulideng, then Sishiko and Mall of the North in the Capricorn District. The club, along with its motorcycle entourage, used their normal bus and only went to present the trophy to HRH Khosikhadi Mwanamuhube Mpatele and took the festivities to their training grounds. Limpopo MEC for Sports, Arts and Culture, Tandimoraka, was briefed. Disappointed as the, the department and also as the provincial government in the manner in which Telcom is trying to treat our champions. You know, it doesn't mean that if we are coming from a rural province, we must be ill-treated. This team have performed for it to be regarded as the Telcom champions, and they were not ready. Telcom was not ready to bring the open uh, bus to the province of Limpopo. We were told this morning that they are unable to locate the service provider that they've appointed, and that issue really doesn't sit well with us as a province. We feel undermined. And finally, in cricket news, West Indies beat Bangladesh by eight wickets in the first 2020 international in Silet on Monday to take a 1-0 lead in the three-match series. Sheldon Cottrell picked up a career best 4 for 28 as West Indies bowled out Bangladesh for 129 runs in 19 overs before Shai Hope guided the Vistas to 130 for two in 10.5 overs with his 55 of 23 balls. Shakib Al-Hassan, earlier top scorer for Bangladesh, 
at the Silet International Stadium with 61 of 43 balls. Bangladesh and West Indies play two more T2020 in Dakar this week. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Etio Chamani. This is Africa Digest. Seventeen fifty-six Central African Time recapping our top stories. The DRC is finally holding elections on December twenty-three, and the PAC in South Africa elects a new president. That wraps up Africa Digest for this hour from myself, Spumele Lezondi, producer Ronald Piri, cynical producer Wiseman Mangaile, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you very much for listening to us. You can send your emails to info at channelafrica.co.za. Tweet us, channel Africa One, or WhatsApp us, plus 2776-300-3327, plus 2776-300-3327. We leave you with Dobe Nyohore's Kokpa.